The Good Reading Podcast is brought to you by Read, the monthly book subscription that pairs a new release book with a pampering gift delivered to your door. There are new books every month and nine genres to choose from. Why not spoil yourself or give the gift of a Read subscription today? Visit luxury.com.au to find out how. When we think about risk, if we think about it at all, we tend to treat it as an individual act, a choice each of us makes to climb a mountain, to become a soldier. Or risk is something we let others manage, whether in finance or government. We push risk aside, insisting that total safety is an unqualified good. We expect fear to be solved with money, but the more prosperous we become, the more anxious and depressed. We insure our lives and property, even as we destroy the planet's future. We have fewer children who we try harder to protect, even as we poison them with worry. Do we even notice that we have entirely overcomplicated everything? How do we live stronger and better as individuals, families, and communities? These were the questions I had in mind when we left the first phase of Trump's America in early 2017. I thought my queries would fade with time and distance. As it turned out, we landed in a place that helped me answer them. Hello, and a very warm welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. My name's Greg Dobbs. Damien Cave is the Australian Bureau Chief for the New York Times. His foreign reporting postings have included Mexico City and Baghdad, where he was among the group of finalists for the Pulitzer Prize for International Reporting. Damien grew up in Massachusetts, USA, and has been living in Sydney with his wife and two children since 2017. Today, I'm talking with Damien Cave about his new book, Into the Rip, How the Australian Way of Risk Made My Family Stronger, Happier, and Less American. Damien, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Into the Rip is a really interesting insight into the psychology of risk, but it's also a memoir, but a memoir of very specific experience in your life. What motivated you to capture and record this particular point in time? Well, you know, when I came to Australia, uh, I think like a lot of Americans, I came here feeling like I understood the place and kind of assuming it would be a bit more similar to the United States than it turned out to be. And, you know, in the back of my mind, I'd had this experience with risk covering the war in Iraq and coming back and covering earthquakes and hazards. So I kind of thought this was a subject that I understood. But then when I came to Australia, I kind of found myself being thrown into a culture that was far more different than I'd anticipated especially when it came to the relationship between risk and risk and parenting. And so the way I saw, you know, kids just walking to school, being unaccompanied more often than I saw in the United States, and especially the way I saw children taught to deal with the threats and dangers of the ocean through nippers and through surfing and through a whole bunch of other things kind of made me realize that I had this gap, both on a personal level and on an intellectual level about how risk worked and about just how life worked. I mean, I think, you know, Americans have gotten so used to kind of having the world look to their way of life as something, you know, that maybe others should copy. And I found myself in Australia, looking back to Trump's America, feeling like that was clearly not a model for what was best for the world or for families, and kind of wondering if Australia might offer an alternative and trying to figure out kind of what that meant for me to sort of work through, you know, what my own relationship to risk was, my own relationship to the United States was, and then also just find a better way to do it. You know, I was at a point in my life where I'd kind of just been kind of stuck in the same routines. I was doing the same things always, eating the same foods, running the same distances, 
And I was kind of just craving a new way of living. And, and to some extent, I think Australia offered an opportunity for me to explore all of that. And it just felt like a book. And so, um, you know, I was looking for some hope and I think I found it. Uh, and I was looking for, you know, a new challenge and a new adventure and kind of what challenge and adventure means to human nature and why it's valuable. Your work as a journalist and as an American gives you a fairly unique position as an observer of the Australian way of risk. What is the Australian way of risk and how is that different to the American way of risk? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of different things that come to mind. I mean, I, in the book, I describe the Australian way of risk as, as a way of life that assumes that life should be fully lived despite potential hazards. And then it tries to manage that uncertainty with education, exposure, and a sense of collective responsibility that insists on humility and competence. The key part of that, I think, is the collective piece of it and the willingness to sort of do it with humility and competence. In the United States, risk is something that's entirely individual. You know, you're assessing what's happening in the world as an autonomous sovereign person who believes that whatever decision you make is most important about how it relates to you. And, you know, to some extent, and this is sort of ironic in an era of COVID, uh, you know, Australia's way of risk is actually more epidemiological in that there's a recognition that you know, my behavior affects someone else. And the best way to sort of deal with challenges, whether it's in the ocean or in a lockdown, is with some sense of shared responsibility. Um, and I think that those are really important things. And then the third piece of it, I think, and this is sort of a struggle for Australia, just as it's a struggle for Americans and for anyone in human nature. So this is more of something that's similar. But one of the great challenges with risk is figuring out how to sort of suppress our emotions and not make decisions that are driven by, you know, our intense fears or, you know, what someone else told us, you know, in our social group, you know, figuring out a way to look at risk with a certain sense of sort of calm pragmatism, I think is really important. And Australia, in part because of the way it raises children and throws them into the ocean and throws them into the bush, I think creates a little bit more of that habit. Um, and that habit, actually, the science tells us really works. The more you get better at risk and small things in life, the better you are at sort of calmly assessing other risks as, they, as you sort of face them. So I, I think all of that sort of combines into what I would say is, I guess, a, a calmer generally, um, with exceptions, but a, a generally a calmer, more collective and more experiential sense of risk that recognizes that, you know, we're only as good at dealing with risk as we are at working with each other and trying to think of each other as we face these challenges. And I gather you experienced a lot of this through your engagement with the institution of NIPAs. And I think most Australians know what NIPAs are, but for those who don't, it's basically young surf lifesavers in training. Was that something you were already familiar with? And where did that experience lead you? I mean, NIPAs was a completely foreign entity to me. When I first got here, uh, you know, I remember seeing the, uh, a bunch of kids kind of at the beach and thinking to myself, well, God, is this like a camp? Is this, you know, like some kind of national ritual? There's so much neon, there's so much lycra. Like what on earth is this thing? Um, it kind of looked like a circus on the beach, basically, of kids training for something like that. Um, and then over time, you know, and then I kept hearing about it. Like all the parents in my neighborhood were like, oh, well, you've got to sign them up for nippers. And oh, they're definitely going to do nippers right. And and um, only when I signed them up did I realize that it's not just fun and games. It's actually a pretty intense training system with deep roots and military training um, to some degree in its history. Uh, 
And it was the same with surf lifesaving, even for the adults. I just, I just, this is not something that's common in the United States. This degree of both volunteerism and public safety combining, which you know you see in surf lifesaving, but you also see with volunteer firefighters, it's just not how it works in the United States or in any of the countries that I've reported in. So it was a complete foreign thing that I had to kind of grow to understand and appreciate in a way that I think maybe some Australians don't even think much about because it just feels so common and familiar. But it's really a remarkable institution and kind of a remarkable ritual and, and, and set of kind of culture that's a part of Australia. And what kind of changes did you observe in your children as they went through that experience? Yeah, it was really interesting. I mean, they they struggled at first. I mean, they, you know, had had some swim lessons when we lived in Mexico, but the expectation of being, you know, a strong swimmer able to manage, you know, a dangerous ocean was not something they were familiar with. So, you know, they didn't pass the first qualifying test. They were scared when they got down to the ocean the first two times. Um, every time that they were pushed further and further, it was a challenge to get them in the water. But over time, they started to grow much more confident, not just in the water, but in other parts of life too. You know, my, my son, who's always been pretty introverted, you know, suddenly said that he wanted to sign up for the debate team. You know, my, my daughter, you know, who really did not want to surf at all while the rest of us were trying to learn, suddenly, you know, was the one wanting to go swimming deep into the ocean when we went to the beach. You know, the one who one day on Nippers came back and saw dolphins and just felt more alive, frankly. And of course, we're talking about one of the most dangerous beaches in Australia, or in Sydney, if not Australia, which is Bronte. It's a legendary place for you know, swimming for accidents, for drowning, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. yeah, no, exactly. And that's that was the thing too. I mean, you know, I ended up in, in Bronte mainly because the public school had some Spanish and, and my kids spoke Spanish from living in Mexico. So I didn't really know what I was getting into. But once I got there and kind of learned just how dangerous it is, you know, that was also a real reminder. I suddenly felt this intense fear for my children that, you know, despite having covered wars and despite thinking of myself as pretty risk savvy, was kind of an unfamiliar sensation. And, and I really had to kind of push through that to let them learn how to be afraid and overcome fear. And it was kind of a regular process that over time really helped them, I think, build strength in other parts of their lives, too. And the same for, for me as a parent, you know, at, at some point, my kids forced me to get involved. And that really changed my own relationship to fear and risk as well. And that, of course, led you to an attempt at the bronze medallion. Why did you do that? And what was the outcome? I did that because my son challenged me to do it. He was trying to get out of nippers, I think, and didn't think I would ever do the bronze. And so, you know, I took up the challenge thinking, oh, well, I can manage this. You know, I, I'm relatively fit. And immediately was thrown backwards into failure <laughs> and weakness in the first, you know, qualifying swim. I totally failed, didn't get there at all. But, you know, it's, it's actually a lot, it's a much more challenging than I expected. In, you know, swimming, there's lots of people who have written great things about swimming and the water over time. And there is something just so therapeutic and philosophical about the water. But what I didn't realize is that it takes a long time to get there. Like I actually hated swimming as I was training to try and get the bronze. And that's despite the fact that my grandfather was almost an Olympic swimmer. My father loves the water. And I, I kind of had to realize that actually that pain and struggle becomes part of why it's meditative and why it's important and why it's humbling and why it's valuable. But it took a while to get there. You know, I think a lot of Australians sort of assume that everyone loves to swim. But in fact, for a lot of us, you know, it's torture at first. Uh, I was struck by one of the uh, phrases you use within the book with regard to training for the, your bronze medallion, which is that it strips us all of individual hero syndrome. 
What did you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, especially with the way sort of life-saving works, you need to work with others. You know, when you're training to sort of save lives, there's, you can't do CPR, work the defibrillator, get the oxygen, and call for help all at the same time, usually. You're usually working with others. And, and I think that's part of it, is there's a recognition that you can't do it alone. But even just on, a, on an almost simpler level, I think being in the great big ocean and kind of recognizing the dangers and trying to sort of manage them yourself puts you in perspective. There's this great you know, line that I use in the book from, from Pascal about what humans role is within the universe and where we sort of sit, where he says, you know, we are something that we are not all. And I, I think for a lot of Americans in particular, that's a hard thing to grapple with. You know, we kind of think we want to be all. And I, I really had to kind of learn that, that degree of humility and that there's actually a better way to live if you can see yourself with that sense of perspective and understatement. When you first arrived in Australia, and I think you described both you and your wife, Diana, as experienced risk assessors who had worked hard to reject helicopter parenting. What made you question that assumption when you arrived in Australia? There were a lot of things. I mean, when we first came back from Iraq and had kids um, in Miami, you know, we were feeling pretty good about ourselves. We didn't really care which bottle we used. We let them, as they were toddlers, you know, climb the tall ladders at the playground. So, you know, we looked like we were the, the kind of bold, brave parents there. And then when we got here, you know, in addition to sort of seeing the way kids were just tossed into the ocean, um, there was also just a sense, I guess, of, communal supervision in a way where kids were just able to roam freer than they had been in the United States and in, in a lot of other places that I've lived and, and not just in New York City, but in suburbs too. There was just this trust in young people and their ability to sort of figure out the world. You know, there's, I mean, for example, even, even right now, you know, there's a, there's a rope swing in, in Bronte Gully at the moment that kids are just flocking to despite the fact that two weeks ago, a couple of kids broke their bones, <laughs> you know, like one kid broke a leg, another kid broke an arm. And at some point I was having a conversation with Mick Fanning about this, who had just had a baby, you know, the famous surfer who had punched a shark. And he was saying too, you know, that he just sort of feels like Australians are just expected to kind of manage things and not run away from them, but manage them. And I think that's an important part of the Australian way of risk too, is not to flee or fight, but to manage it and to work with it as opposed to opposing it. You touched on this subject earlier, but you use the term communal parenting as opposed to individual parenting. What is that exactly and how did it manifest itself for you here in Australia? Well, part of it is what I was just describing in terms of, you know, the kids sort of roaming free. And part of the reason they can do that is, you know, there are parents who will tell me, you know, hey, I saw Baz down at the park, you know, he was doing X, Y, and Z. And so there's a sense of sort of collective sharing of parenting um, which happens in any small community, maybe, but it's much more common, I think, in an urban environment in Australia than it is in the United States or in other places. Um, so that's part of it. But then also, and it's sort of built in even to the way Nippers works, where parents are expected to participate. You know, you're expected to be either on the sand helping kids get in the water, or if you're in the water, you're trying to protect them from drowning. And, you know, I had to sort of let my kids be taken care of by the parents of their friends and to just accept and trust them that they were going to be okay and that they were going to be responsible for my children the same way they would be responsible for their own. And it was frightening, but also extremely liberating. And it just gave me like a, a sense of community that frankly, I haven't felt anywhere else. There's also quite a bit of discussion about self-esteem and the self-esteem movement in this book. And at times you're quite critical of this self-esteem movement. 
What is the problem with the self-esteem movement as you see it? Well, it's fascinating. I mean, the self-esteem movement became so popular in the United States that it was sort of like the air you breathe. It was everywhere when I was growing up. And I didn't really think about it at the time, but the more I kind of researched both the history of it and the way it sort of played out in the United States in particular, but elsewhere too, I started to realize that it kind of has things backwards. The whole, the whole idea of self-esteem is that if you tell people they're gonna, that they need to feel good or that they're beautiful or that they're smart or that they're wonderful, that that will motivate them to do well. When in fact, it's the opposite. Doing well actually gives you self-esteem. You can't have self-esteem without doing things well. And this is, I think, another way that sort of Australia stands out. When you think of something like nippers and surf lifesaving, where the goal is to be proficient. The goal is to be skilled in doing. And by being skilled in doing, that's actually how we build confidence. You know, you can say however much you want, how, you know, oh, you're wonderful, or you're so smart, or you're so this. But, you know, most of the time we see through it. And we recognize that that's just sort of platitudes and that's not actually what makes us feel better. In fact, sometimes it makes people narcissistic. Sometimes it makes people depressed. There are a whole bunch of problems that come from just telling people nice things about themselves without actually helping them become masters and managers of the life that they live. And that's really the path that needs to change. You actually use the phrase self-esteem is the result of successful action. Yeah, it's basically, you know, it's, it's a little bit of like what I saw with my kids with nippers where, you know, they were very insecure and lacking confidence when they got started. But the deeper they went out in the ocean, the more that they saw that they had strength that they didn't realize they had, the more that they saw that they could be resilient, they could get smashed by a wave and then get back up and get back out there. That's how they actually grew to become more confident. You know, we're still built and, and shaped by our evolutionary biology and the need for sort of physical challenge and to some degree social challenge and social risk where we push ourselves into places and community air places where we don't have feel comfortable. That's actually how we build confidence. When we retreat, we just become more and more insecure and more depressed and have less confidence. And so, you know, the path to self-esteem, self-esteem is important, but the path to actually getting there involves action, not words. As I read this book, and particularly as I got towards the end of the book, I, I kind of thought that this book, although it says it's about risk, is actually about happiness. And I wanted to ask you what you think the ingredients of happiness are and have they changed with your experience of life in Australia? Yeah, I'm so glad that you picked up on that because I do think that's that's a big part of the book. You know, I think in the end of the at the end of the day what motivated me to write this book is maybe I wasn't as happy as I could be, or I should be, or I wanted to be. And neither was the world. You know, I sort of feel like I had seen such a breakdown in community and a breakdown in just an ability to work together in the United States. And it kind of broke my heart. And, you know, in, in the process of doing this book and of really throwing myself into Australia, I started to feel like I found at least maybe a path back. And what I kind of discovered is it's not necessarily the big things. It's not the things we like to talk about. It's not who we vote for. It's not, you know, how much money we give to charity. Sometimes it's the really small things that you do with your family and your community. It's the willingness to try something totally new that makes you connect with someone that you wouldn't have otherwise connected with. It's the ability to be a novice at something and recognize that you know, maybe humility is a better way to approach new things, but that also there's a thrill to being a beginner. Um, and it's being a model for our children, you know, not just telling them what to do, not just telling them to be resilient, but actually trying to show what that's like in our own lives. 
And when you do that, even on a small scale, you know, I think it can make you a lot happier. You know, it certainly did for me and my family. I think we feel both less American, more Australian, and happier than we probably felt at any point in our lives. And, and I'm really grateful to Australia for showing me that. You know, and sometimes I think Australians, it, it's, it's a country that often knocks itself down a lot, you know, that's, that's always sort of talking about what it's doing wrong. And there's humility in that that I respect and admire. But there are also models all throughout the society that really offer a path back to what I think is what we all need, which is to choose optimism, to choose adventure, to choose working with other people we love and people we don't even know. And so maybe Australia and the whole world can just hopefully in this book, find a little way back to some of those core principles. And sometimes they're right around the corner, or in my case, just down the road at the beach. It's a really nice observation to make, Damien. And I've just got one final question for you. Now that you've undergone at least some of the Australian initiation rituals, have you been rechristened as Damo? Oh, completely. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad you asked that too. It's funny, in the group of dads that I play on a terrible basketball team with, um, I've noticed just recently, actually, that they no longer call me Damien. It's Damo all the time. And especially now, I think with the book, um, that's pretty much the only thing I'm going to be called from now on. <laughs> I think it's a pretty good position to be in. <laughs> yeah. Damien, thanks so much for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you so much. I've been talking to Damien Cave about his new book, Into the Rip, How the Australian Way of Risk Made My Family Stronger, Happier and Less American. It's published by Simon & Schuster and is available at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs and thanks for listening. This Good Reading Podcast was brought to you by Luxury Read. Why not spoil yourself or give the gift of a Luxury Read subscription today? Visit luxuryread.com.au to find out how.